1: 101.5 UMFM. This is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio and brand new from Record Kicks. That is Hannah Williams and the Affirmations with I Feel It All off of her 50-Foot Woman album. I just received that earlier this week and that is not the Feist I Feel It All. It's a very different one, but a no less enjoyable one. Speaking of enjoyable, we got a great show for you tonight. Montreal jazz guitarist Sam Kermeyer is going to be in town October 2nd and joins me by phone to talk about his Western Canadian tour. Author Eva Klassen talks about the Fox in a Brox Kickstarter campaign. And I talked to Susanna from Victoria Band Bridal Party, uh, who played a handsome daughter tomorrow night with House Panther and Alan Mode. And speaking of Victoria, our next track is from Victoria Band Peach Pyramid. It's the leadoff track to the new album Bright Blue. This is FOMO here on 101.5 UMFM. In support of their new album, Too Much, Victoria Band Bridal Party land at the Handsome Daughter tomorrow night. And joining me from the phone, on the road, Suze, how's it going?
2: Uh, it's, I'm, it's going well. We're all doing well. We slept well and yeah, having a nice time.
1: So uh, obviously like a few dates into this, uh, reception to the record? Because I mean, it's a pretty new record. It came out at the end of August. Mm-hmm. What's what uh, was the question? Uh, sorry, what's the what's the feedback been like so far from, from live audiences considering uh, the record?
2: Feedback's been really wonderful. Uh, the shows have been pretty small so far, but everyone's been listening, and um, the reaction has been positive. We've sold a few records, too, on vinyl, which is, uh, I don't know, uplifting and satisfying.
1: Right on. Uh, yeah. So this record, I mean, you guys had some EPs leading up to this. But mm-hmm. this this is the the first full length, and uh, I'm curious about kind of because I, I I noticed on the uh, the bandcamp page for it that recording took place between September 2017 and September 2018, and mm-hmm. I'm curious about kind of like the genesis of the record, and were those dates kind of that far apart, just kind of like scheduling and finances, or was there kind of you know any creative reasons for for those kind of uh, that kind of time?
2: Yeah. It was definitely more of a scheduling and finances um, type thing because I think we meant to record everything in the first week um, and we didn't quite get to it. And then we ended up redoing a lot of the tracks too. And everyone was in school and traveling a bit in between. And so it was just a matter of when we could all make the time to get together and record. Uh, Yeah.
1: So then the the material that you got down first in the, in that period that you thought you were going to get it all down. Can you see like a difference between the band you were for those songs versus the bands you were for the later songs? Like, do you see like a, a gap or, or some sort of change dyna- dynamically?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think we've grown a lot. We have a new member too on keys, um, that changed uh, from the first time I recorded to the last time I recorded. Um, and the way we write and the way we re-record has grown and changed quite a bit too. So the first songs like uh, When I'm Naked and Armor of Arrogance and uh, Saltwater we wrote quite a long time ago, probably like two or three years. And um, those were recorded for at first and we changed quite a few parts in them. And then the more recent songs Tylenol, Speakeasy and Wells. And too much, we recorded and wrote in a way shorter period of time and managed to demo them. So it felt, I don't know, it felt a lot more natural and like we had less time to really, to get too focused, you know, on parts that we didn't like. Like I think we prefer to write, record, and release in a shorter window now because it feels a bit more cathartic. And I don't know.
1: Sharpens the senses some way? Like you have to be kind of on your toes?
2: Yeah, on our toes, and you don't get too bored of what you've written. Often, if it takes like two or three years to record and release a song, then you can get a bit tired of it. Right, is just part of the process, but it is too bad. It feels better when it's a little fresher, and yeah, fresh and new
1: for so, us. So then, the songs that were recorded earliest, going back to them now, because obviously you're touring the record. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there like a challenge to kind of reinvigorate yourself when it comes to replaying them and and kind of reintroducing yourselves as a band to those songs?
2: Yeah, it can be challenging, but it can be pretty exciting too, um, to just come up with a few new arrangements for playing live, or just like alter our energy towards the song itself. Um, Yeah, so they do become fresh i guess as we grow as a band and play them with the arrangement we have now um but it does pose some challenges sometimes we're like what are we doing
1: so the recording process lee goche who's in the band also produced recorded mixed the record was that like a a role that he took on like you know in in the first place just kind of like not necessarily by expedience but just because he understood the material or like what was the decision making that went into that?
2: Um, yeah, Lee's produced and recorded all of our EPs. Actually the first and the last one. Um, and yeah, he went to school for a computer science and music. So it's one of his passions to be mixing and producing. And it's just super convenient and wonderful that he wants to do it for our band too. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's really helpful to have a producer and like audio engineer that knows the music and is part of writing the music because um, he knows what sound we're going for. And it's like a very collaborative process.
1: So speaking of that sound you're going for, like, was there kind of an agreement amongst the band that like there was a specific tone or, you know, other records that you were hoping to kind of capture sound from that you, you had in mind when you set out in the studio?
2: Um, we didn't really have a specific sound with this record. This was like a bit of a mishmash of all the songs we've written that hadn't been released yet. Okay. Um, so I guess the tones just come from personal instri- interest and inspirations. Definitely the the key sounds on some of the newer songs are when Jordan joined the band. Like he brought his role in synth and his korg electric piano um and he i don't know he's really influenced by steely dan and a lot of old jazz and so that was a bit of a new texture Mm. that he brought um i think i'd read an
1: interview you did uh with canadian beats or at least someone from the band talked about kind of being into unknown Mortal orchestra and Mm -hmm. i I could see those like kind of like steely dan jazz overlaps with that group and, and
2: yeah yeah, we definitely all listened to a lot of Unknown Mortal Orchestra like four years ago when we were first getting together, and and Tops, and a lot of Canadian indie like Men I Trust and stuff too. Right. Um, now, yeah.
1: The the album is called Too Much. There is a song on there called Too Much, and you, you've you released a video for that track. What was it about mm-hmm. that song that made it like the album title and, and the thing that was kind of going to be like front-facing for this mm-hmm. record?
2: Um. I guess it, like, lyrically, that song expresses a lot of how we feel as a band and just how I feel individually. Sometimes everything just feels like too much, you know? Like, all the info and the news and the feelings you have. Um, It also, I don't know, the title track, it just felt like it it came off the tongue really nicely to be the title track of a record. Right. Uh, Yeah, it was... It's definitely one of our more upbeat singles too. And yeah, it just felt it felt pretty natural to have that as a title track.
1: As as upbeat as it is, the, the video has the audience like, you know, rebelling against you and, and throwing things at the band. Yeah. What was the like what what was the idea behind that?
2: Well, uh, I guess that lyrically the song is about like how you judge yourself the most, usually, and um, it's pretty self-critical, and, but, yeah, so we wanted to have, the talent show was us performing, but the judges were also us judging ourselves, and then, I guess we're just, like, the audience booing and not liking it, it's kind of just a joke about how we take ourselves too seriously sometimes, and sometimes it feels like you're doing your best, but. I don't know, people are against you, but usually it's on your head. Um, yeah, I guess that's where that idea came from.
1: Now, you said these were kind of the songs you hadn't recorded yet, that, you know, when you were going for sound or tone, they each kind of had their own. But there seems to be some sort of, like, lyrical thematic overlap amongst some of the songs. Was that just kind of a condition of, like, when you were writing them, or was there any sort of purposeful... Thought behind kind of what you were addressing,
2: um, like lyrically throughout the summer. Yeah, or, yeah, I guess so. Joe and I often have like the same um, same goals when we're writing. Like we want it to be accessible, but still poetic in a way, and and keep it interesting. Um, so definitely, it wasn't like a A premeditated theme, but Mm -hmm. I think, I don't know, just the way we process the world around us comes up in the same way all the time, and so it comes up in our writing, and just the way we play together ends up creating the same sound for the songs, even though we don't really plan on it, I guess.
1: Right. Well, speaking of things that are unplanned, I'm going to get you to pick a track off the record that we can play for listeners. Okay. And if you have a reason behind that song or an anecdote about it, love to hear that.
2: Um, I say Saltwater. Let's play Saltwater. I find that song is my favorite to play because it's got such a mood evoked from it. And Joe and I wrote those lyrics together quite a long time ago. I think like maybe six months into starting the band, so three and a half years ago. Uh, And. Yeah, we just sat down and looped the chord progression that Joe had come up with um, in the living room and just wrote down what came to mind. And I guess we were both feeling a bit tired and run down. Um, And so it's just about when you're not feeling very well and you feel like the whole world's just going by outside your bedroom window, but there's something really pleasant and moody about that. So
1: yeah alright well we'll give Let's that one salt water awesome. salt water we'll play that off of too much the band is at the handsome daughter tomorrow night with house panther and Alamode. Susanna, suzanne thanks very much for taking some time out of your uh, travel and uh, safe safe travels on the road
2: yeah thanks so
3: much for taking some time out of your day too alright hope to see y'all there my schedule is empty it's cloud in my vision Train without payment, where I read novels and not off the bit. In fiction, like quick dreams, the surreal can be ugly. A shadowy to
0: Close, we're living close, close to the edge, close, close to the edge.
1: back here on Thank God It's Free Range, and you just heard Black Mountain with Closer to the Edge off of their latest Destroyer. They are at the Pyramid tonight, Uh, pretty much playing right around 8 o'clock. It's an early show this evening at the Pyramid because there's something else happening afterwards. Uh, And then uh, before that, Bridal Party with Saltwater. That was Susanna's choice off of their album Too Much. They are, of course, at The Handsome Daughter tomorrow night with House Panther and Ala Mode. Keeping it on the upcoming show tip, it was announced that Chastity are bringing their new album, Homemade Satan, to the Goodwill on November 5th, and we've got a new track from that record called Flames. After that, we've got a brand new track from Isque. It's called Sweet Tuesday, and it is off of Achakozak, which is due out in November, And after that, my interview with Eva Clausen, author and educator about her new project Fox in a Box. Get into that. But first, chastity with flames here on UM 101.5 (laughs) UMFM. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. All right. Well, Eva Claussen is the author of Fox in a Box, a forthcoming book that is in the midst of a Kickstarter campaign, and she joins us on the line. How are you doing, Eva? Hi,
4: Michael. I'm doing well. Thanks. How are you?
1: I'm doing pretty good. Thankfully, uh, dry right now. But uh-huh. uh, it was <laughs> I was soaked on the, my way in this morning. Yeah, uh, I. As I understand it, you are an outdoor educator, and the inspiration from this book came from your experiences. In that world.
4: Yeah, that's right. Um, I worked at Fort White Alive as a forest school facilitator. So basically what that looked like was um, instead of preschool inside, we had preschool outside in the woods. So we were outside um, all the time, every day, uh, no matter whether it was raining or snowing or whether it was really cold, we just kind of like Figured out a way to make ourselves comfortable and to um, yeah to learn outside in the woods. It was really really great.
1: So you would have been out there in a torrential downpour like this morning?
4: Yes, but what we would have done is we have a really smart setup of tarps. So we would have set up tarps. We also might have found some shelter in the woods because if you're in a if you have a tree canopy, you really don't feel the rain as much. So there's a lot of creative ways that we would have managed um, regardless of what the weather looked like. Or some days when it was rainy and if it's really warm, we would just like embrace it and go play in the, in the mud puddles and go like jumping and splashing in the water. So it all depends what the kids are feeling that day.
1: So that like kind of fluidity of uh, curriculum, as it were, or like learning, uh, is that something that you really embraced and enjoyed about the, the, that role? Like that, you know, the weather may dictate what you do and what you learn?
4: Uh, I think for me, what I love about it is that I don't, I didn't start the day with a set of like, okay, today we're covering this, this and this, rather the things came up in a very natural environment. And so it felt a lot more meaningful to everyone because it's like, it's right there in front of your face. This is a, this is a real life experience and we are learning from this. So rather than starting the day with like, this is what we're learning. I would end the day with, okay, here's what we learned. This is my checklist of things we covered today.
1: So then the, the plot of Fox in a Box or the messaging behind it then, it, I have to imagine maybe came about the same way that it wasn't like you set out with a specific purpose or that like, the, the notion of the book kind of came to you as a result of these experiences?
4: Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, what happened was the inspiration did come from forest school. Um, so we would talk about animals a lot and there were a couple of, um, of kids who would bring their stuffies with them. Sometimes it was a little bit difficult to part with them because it's like it's a safety thing, right? Mm-hmm. But when you're playing out in the woods, you got to have both hands available. Like if you trip and fall, you can't be like, you know, carrying a bunch of things in your hands. So your hands have to be available for you to use. So we would gently encourage them to leave, leave the fox or like leave their stuffed animal behind. And so we had these little square cubbies. And this little girl would, like, tuck her fox into the box in a really sweet way where, like, the paws and the head are sticking out of the box. Um, And through that, like, we would kind of talk about, okay, what's Fox doing in your box right now? Like, your lunch is in there. Do you think he's snacking on your lunch? Or, like, she would have other things in her box. And so we would talk about what Fox potentially could be doing in the box while we were outside playing. And I think that was just a, a way to ease kind of the you know, Fox is doing something fun and creative. He's having fun and we're having fun um, and it's all good. Right. But yeah, the, the stories that I wrote did come from my experiences at forest school just because it was such a fun environment and the kids were so interesting and creative in their play. And so I couldn't help but like pick up on these really neat things that kids would do or say. And it would just kind of like I often express myself creatively. And so it just it came out in story form.
1: So you're using these stories as kind of like a soothing mechanism for this little girl who has to kind of surrender her, her stuffy for the day. At what point do you realize like this might be a story to share kind of more widely?
4: Um, I think it kind of happened because there was, this wasn't the first story. There were a couple of other ones. And when I had kind of this body of work, um, Uh, And then I shared one of them out loud with my partner and he like he got goosebumps on his arm is what he told me. And so he's like, you should do like you should do something about this. So I very randomly reached out to um, someone who I really admired at the time. I didn't know her. I just followed her account on Instagram. Her name is Leanne Thiessen. Um, So I just randomly I was like, hey, I wrote some kids books this is one of them. Would you be interested in working together and illustrating it? And so she got back to me right away and she was like, yes, I would be interested. But then because of life circumstances and I traveled a little bit and she was doing some like big learning on her own. um, We didn't work on it for about a year. And then I was away on a trip and she emailed me a couple of days before I got home and she's like, let's do this. Like I, i I would love to work on this project. So I was like, okay, let's get together when I get home. And we ended up meeting and it's just kind of evolved, um, like in a really, what feels like a natural way. Like we haven't had to force anything, like things have just kind of fallen into place in a really like kind of comfortable, natural way. So um, yeah, here we are. We're in the middle of our Kickstarter. We met our halfway goal a couple of days ago. So we're really excited about that. We have about 20 more days until the end of the campaign. So we're hoping that we can we can reach our goal before then.
1: Mm-hmm. So when it comes to, I mean, because there's a variety of, uh, obviously, levels, and, and and this is true of a lot of Kickstarters, but how do you go about kind of deciding what your sort of levels will be? Because and, and, there's some interesting ones, like in terms of, you know, you donate a sci- softcover copy to the Winnipeg Children's Hospital at a certain level in addition to the other person getting a copy and and things like that. How did you come up with that?
4: Um, That's actually one that we just added a couple of days ago. That was like our celebratory, hey, we made it halfway here. Mm. And honestly, I only thought of that one like maybe a week ago, um, just because of um, conversations I was having with people. And um, like I live really close to the Children's Hospital, and so – I cycle past it every day and my brother, he, he had to stay in the hospital for a while as a kid. So that place has a lot of um, memories connected to, like for me and because I work with kids, I just um, like, I wanted this to be something more than just like, this is a book that we're making. Yeah, that's great. It has a really good message, but I still like it. I wanted it to be something deeper, like more meaningful, like to have a positive impact in the world. And so when I thought of the idea, I was like, hey, it's kind of last minute, but you know what? Let's do it because I feel I feel that it's important. Um, and I, I think that other people would too. I think this is something that we can kind of work at together and rally behind. And I think the kids will love it. I'm really, really looking forward to, to sharing this story with the kids that we meet. So
1: You also have a level of gifting it in a box to Winnipeg area class at, yes. a, at a higher level as well. Uh, yeah. So that kind of I have to imagine kind of stems off of a your role as an educator, but b also this idea of like you know giving copies to to people who might need them or who yeah. might benefit from um, them.
4: Yeah, when I did my practicum in university, I worked in several uh, inner city inner city schools, and I just saw like just really really great kids. I I feel like my my heart was in was in the inner city at that point, point. Um, and so I. I honestly was just kind of looking for excuse to get into a classroom and like pretend that, I, that I'm a teacher again because I'm not teaching right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on this project and then working on some other smaller side projects. But I really love um, being with kids and being in the school environment just because it, um, yeah, it's, yeah, kids are so energizing and they kind of make me feel like I can just be a kid again. So I feel like more free and I feel more creative and I feel like things are more fun when there's kids around. So, yeah.
1: So one of the uh, pledge levels that's all gone was the one with the stuffy. Yes. Um, how did you go about finding someone who could recreate the fox that Leanne did as a, as uh, a physical item?
4: Yeah, you know what? It was Instagram again. Um, and also Leanne had a connection with, um, her name is Jennifer Long. Her Instagram account is Be so Inspired. Um, and so it was just another message through Instagram to be like, hey, this is our project. Here's um, a picture that Leanne had illustrated of the fox. Would you be interested in working with us? And she she was. And what I haven't released to the public yet, but what I will tell you is that because they sold out so quickly and there was a lot of interest in them, we're actually going to release another 10 or 15 in probably about a week or so. Or maybe earlier. I haven't quite decided yet. but. Um, yeah, for any listeners that are interested, keep your eyes open for that. If if the little fox, your actual fox in a box um, is something that you're they're interested in.
1: So the Kickstarter runs to October 10th. Yes. Uh, and as you said, you're a little over halfway. The goal is $12,000. Um, yes. Kickstarter.com slash project slash fox in a box book for people who want to check it out. And there they can see some samples of the illustrations as well as a yep. picture of that stuffy which is adorable um, and uh, they can kind of get a sense of where things are at and there is uh, local shipping options and, and obviously to other countries as well. Uh, yep. Eva, good luck with the project and, and thanks for very much for taking some time to talk about it.
4: Thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate it.
5: The siren.
1: the Sam Kermeyer trio coming to the CCFM on October 1st and joining us by phone the head of that trio Sam how's it going
6: it's going good thanks you
1: doing all right now uh, is this your first western swing
6: I was out on the west coast um, in May of 2018 had a couple dates around BC and I uh, was in Calgary and Winnipeg in, sorry Calgary and Edmonton but it'll be my first time in Winnipeg right on.
1: Now, uh, for folks who don't know you, uh, we'll, we'll kind of do some introduction and, and background uh, first. You studied at McGill. Yeah, I did. Um, and and I, I'm curious, kind of like what led you to jazz studies? And, and you know, I mean, because there's certainly two tracks for a lot of jazz musicians. There's those who kind of just like go into it and, and start gigging. And then there's some who kind of go into it from a, a, a university and sort of structured study sense. It sounds like from, from your like youthful background, you, you might might have gravitated towards gigging because you were starting to play when you were like six
6: years old. Yeah, well, I, I grew up kind of playing guitar pretty early, and I was playing in rock bands uh, all throughout high school. And for a year or so after I finished high school, I was just doing that. And then I kind of started to feel dissatisfied with my musical development, so I was looking around at, at what would be ways to kind of Take things to the next level, and I ended up going back to school in a college program here in, in Montreal. Um, and I, that program ended up just being a jazz program because that's what they offered for electric guitar. But mm. pretty quickly, I realized that this is music that was so deep and offered so much kind of uh, variety that you could spend a lifetime working in it and never get get fed up or never you know run out of new things to try. So that that was pretty um, inspiring. And that led me to really try to push myself and, and learn how to play this music, and then naturally from there, I ended up uh, continuing on and getting a bachelor's degree at McGill, and uh, kind of haven't looked back. And yeah, I've just been been playing this music ever since.
1: You're saying, in, in terms of the the jazz guitar, that it's a thing where you can kind of continue and 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 always chase things. Is that what you felt like fed up with in in sort of like the the rock background?
6: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give the impression that that I'm thinking like I had mastered that music because obviously any any music to do it well can be incredibly deep and can be a lifetime pursuit. But I was starting to feel like, you know, I there was a, a maybe a, like a lack of variety might be one way to put it, or feeling the music tended to be kind of harmonically repetitive. And the more I found out about new kind of sounds. Um, Um, From jazz, the the more it just opened up this world of music that was possible. And I had kind of grown up with Coltrane recordings and and Bolognese Monk recordings, but I'd never really had any exposure to jazz guitar. So to me, they were just these two separate worlds. There was guitar music and then there was jazz. And when I started to see how these could connect, then something really clicked.
1: Yeah, I read an interview, I think you did it with Peter Hum from the Ottawa Citizen, and you were talking about the two sort of jazz CDs that you had and, and neither of them were, were guitar, like, band leaders. They were, you know, guitar always was a supporting instrument within those contexts.
6: Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my dad is a huge jazz fan, and my uncle is a musician as well, so because of them, I'd been exposed to it. But I'd never heard people like Wes or Grant Green, really, until I got to school and was studying it. And, and then, obviously, those guys became really big influences on me.
1: Now, like, hearing so- something like that, where they are sort of the the melodic instrument or, you know, kind of a, the, the at the center of, of any uh, combo, did that open things up in your head in terms of, like, compositionally?
6: Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, I, I think I try to, in my compositions, think about the guitar as, as just a horn. And obviously there's things you can't do with a guitar that you could do with a, with a trumpet, uh, just in terms of sustaining or shaping a note. Um, we're a bit limited in that sense because it's not directly connected with the breath. But I really do like to, to write with the guitar as the primary melodic voice and then having some sort of uh, harmonic instrument like piano or on this last record, organ, to flesh things out a bit underneath.
1: Right. Now you worked with Ben Patterson on, on High and Low, your most recent record. Was it like just because you were working with Ben that you kind of moved towards the organ sound or like was that a purposeful thing? Like, I, I want to explore like a a guitar and organ and and sort of that, like, not necessarily electronic tone, but like, you know, they're both electric instruments, let's say.
6: Yeah, I think there's definitely an affinity between those instruments. And a lot of my favorite records are organ trios or organ groups of some sort. Um, You know, all of my heroes have worked in that format at some point or another. And I started doing it a little bit while I was at school. Um, playing with Kevin Dean, who's a great trumpet player who, who kind of started the program at McGill and is also a, a really great organist. So we started playing a little bit while I was finishing up my studies there. And then I was looking for a chance to continue to explore that format, and I was checking out some some records, some players that are doing it now, and I came across Ben's work with uh, Peter Bernstein and Bobby Broome and Ed Cherry, who are all heroes of mine. And I was talking to a friend of mine about it, and she mentioned that she had his phone number, and they'd hung out and done a couple gigs together. So I just called him up, and he was into it, and we went from there.
1: So then, in working on the material for High and Low, like was it a, like a collaborative composition process, or like were you kind of taking ideas to Ben and, and letting him flesh out like the organ part? How did how did that dynamic work?
6: I mean, I kind of I wrote everything that all the original music um, I wrote on my own. It, it wasn't so much a collaboration in that. Pers- in that way. Obviously, um, it's a jazz group, so I tried to leave as much space as I could for people to bring their personalities to the performances. And, and we did get to play two nights at a jazz club here in Montreal upstairs before we went in to cut the record. And that gave us a bit of a chance to feel each other out and get a sense of the tunes and for little arrangements to develop organically. Um, but I, I, I kind of have a sense of what I want to record when I go in to make a record, at least my own record. So I was writing and, and choosing standards, thinking of these guys and thinking how they would sound on it and how we would complement each other. But I was kind of steering the ship for sure.
1: So, in writing a song and then, like you said, leaving space f- for for the other people to to play on it and, and kind of create their own space and, and voice, like how do you, how do you manage that feat as a, as a songwriter? Right, because like, I mean, obviously, you have to have a sense of like where the song is going and where it'll end. But how how do you kind of manufacture that space or, or create it for them
6: yeah i think um for me a lot of it is i don't like to dictate to drummers for instance what kind of feel they should play i might say you know give an indication of the tempo and and maybe if we're going to play it as a swing tune or if it's not a swing tune that kind of thing but i i wouldn't want to get involved in their creative process coming up with a beat for the tune and i likewise when i'm when i'm writing a, i i Really limit myself to a melody and, and some simple chords, and try to avoid writing what voicings people should play, what what specific chords they should play, so that they, there's really space for it to be interpreted. Um, so I guess overall, I would say it's, it's really a question of deciding what not to write down as much as what is being written down.
1: Okay, and then in terms of choosing uh, standards or like you know not your own compositions to include, is there something kind of linkage to, to the songs that you chose or like that they tie in with your originals or like what what kind of factors are at play in those decisions?
6: Yeah, for me, I mean, on my first record as well as this one, it was it's really important to me to include standards, first of all, just because I think that this is a really essential part of the, the tradition of this music, interpreting songs and trying to come up with some small twist and some personal way of, of playing it that hasn't been done before even if it is common repertoire. Um, so that just basically, that including standards at all, is something that, that's part of my conception of, of what a great jazz record should be. And then from there's the specific tunes. I tried this record to choose material that I thought would suit the musicians. So there's a Coleman Hawkins tune on this record called Almost Done. It's the last track. And I'd heard that on this record that he made, a 60s record called uh, The Hawk Swings. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know if anybody else has done it since then. I haven't been able to find anything. But after I I heard this, I thought, it's not an organ record, but I thought this would be a great tune for Ben. It kind of seemed to me like it would really suit his approach. So that tune came from there. There There's a tune on there that was written by Andre White, one of uh, my mentors, and a great Montreal musician, uh, pianist, drummer, and composer, educator at McGill. And so one of his tunes, Farnsworth, which I started playing with him a little bit here in town, and I just like the idea of of taking that into an organ format, and and because that's really not something that Andre would do. So I, I guess I'm just trying to pull music that I like from different sources and bend it to fit the uh, the musicians that I'm working with at the moment.
1: So you're you're finding these songs that obviously weren't written with an organ in mind for for Ben. Are you doing the same thing for yourself? Like, are you choosing songs that you know maybe you would like to tackle with the voice of your guitar? in uh, in a song that wasn't written for guitar
6: yeah I mean in a sense yes all these songs are written when we're talking about standards usually they're written as a vocal songs either for for musicals or films or just tin pan alley Mm -hmm. Um, but an example would be on a clear day which is a tune written by Burton Lane which for me I always associate with Wynn Kelly who is one of my favorite pianists and He just, I wanted to play something that captured that joyful feeling in his music. So I adapted that to the guitar. You know, we had to change the key around and and kind of find a little bit of a different way of playing it. So I guess in a sense, that is what you're talking about. But I also just feel like this is the filter. The guitar is kind of the filter that any music goes through. So there's always some sort of translation happening. Right.
1: Now, you mentioned that Almost Dawn closes the record. I'm always curious about kind of the decision-making that goes into the the flow of a record and and sort of the the track order. What what was your mindset in approaching putting High and Low together in that sense?
6: Yeah, I know some people like to go into the studio and they'll have like maybe 20 tunes to record if they're looking to put out eight on the final record and then they just take the best ones. But I'm really more, um, I don't want to say focused, but but maybe I plan ahead a little bit more. So there's nine tunes on the record. Those are the nine that we recorded, and I knew that that's what I wanted to be on. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I didn't really have a sense of what order they would be in necessarily until I heard uh, the rough mixes, and then I started trying things out. But I do try in advance to make sure that we're covering different territories. There's a couple of ballads. There's some some stuff in 3-4, 5-4. Four, four. just trying to have a variety of music so that I don't end up with an entire record at the same tempo or in the same key, for example. But then once once that kind of pre-planning has happened, then based on whatever the results are, I'll try to tweak it and and find an order that flows.
1: Now Ben's on tour with you on this uh, this western stretch. Is he bringing an organ on tour, or are you working off of a keyboard, or what's what's the the logistics? He's got an organ
6: on some of the dates. We'll be using a keyboard in uh, Winnipeg, but um, he he makes anything sound great. So
1: sure. Uh, so before I let you go, I want to get you to pick a track off high and low that we can play for listeners, uh, whether it's one we talked about or one we haven't. And if you have a reason why you're picking that or an anecdote about the song, I'd love to hear that.
6: Um, so maybe Casalet oublie. So that's, uh, one of my compositions. It's named after my street, Casolet, which is in the uh, Montreal neighborhood of St. Henry, which is actually where Oscar Peterson is from. And when I moved into this this apartment on this block, there's this massive construction project, the biggest in the province, tearing down this old highway interchange and building a new one. And a couple blocks away from where we're living, there's all these brand new trendy restaurants. So a friend of a friend coined the term the St. Henry of the Forgotten, or the Le saint Henry des Oubliés in French. And so I thought that was hilarious. So we uh, the tune is, is named after that. And I tried to get a little bit of the chaotic vibe of the neighborhood.
1: Right on. Uh, so we'll give that one a listen. October 1st at CCFM. Uh, I guess your website's probably the best place to go to to kind of keep tabs on, on you and all the link, all the socials come off of that.
6: Yeah, my, my website, which is samkermeyer.com or on Facebook, which is at Sam Kermeyer Music, or I'm on Instagram at, at Sam Kermeyer. And I'll be posting tour updates on all those platforms through the whole tour. So that's any one of those is a good way to follow us.
1: Perfect. Well, Sam, thanks for taking some time and and safe travels on tour.
6: Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.
1: singer Afros with Invincible, a new track that I just got earlier this week. Before that, Casale Oublié from Sam Kermeyer. And just a reminder, CCFM on October 2nd, if you want to see his jazz combo live and in action. After Eight Radio is coming up right away, but before I let you go, I've got something from Italian producer Ka-Fu, new track called Good and Gray, dropped on Bandcamp and SoundCloud this past week. And uh, I'm digging it, and I hope you do too. I'll be back here on Thank God It's Free Range next Friday, 6:30 p.m. here on 101.5 UMFM. <laughs>
7: Thank you.